Hello, and welcome to the February 2020 edition of the MDS podcast. I'm Sarah Schaefer from Yale School of Medicine, and I am delighted to welcome Dr. Sarah Lidstone from the Toronto Western Hospital Movement Disorders Clinic and the University of Toronto to discuss her recent viewpoint in movement disorders clinical practice on integrated therapy for functional movement disorders. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Lidstone. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm very, it's a, it's a pleasure to get a chance to speak about our work. I wanted to start by just going through a little bit of the background here. In the viewpoint piece, you and your co-authors start by discussing kind of the status quo of how patients with functional movement disorders often make their way through the medical system and also why that's not an ideal system. Can you summarize your thoughts on this? Yeah, so I think, you know, this this is a population that is uh, quite commonly presents movement disorders. Um, I mean, second most common reason to see a neurologist is for functional neurological symptoms. But in terms of movement disorders clinics, although there aren't, there isn't a huge amount of data in this area, we think it's anywhere between 3 to 20% of, of, of cases. So we see these patients frequently. We, I think, acknowledge as a field that uh, they are a bit of an underserved population. Historically, they have kind of fallen between the gap uh, between neurology and psychiatry. And they often end up for lack of a better word, kind of bounced, bounced around the system um, because of, of, of their symptoms. And it often leads to chronic, uh, it's, it's a driver of, of chronic symptoms, um, and it can be a very kind of unsatisfying um, clinical interaction for both the patient and for the provider because we obviously want to help patients and help them to get better. And then frequently what happens is the patient is then um, told the diagnosis and the um, result can, can go many different ways during that conversation. And that, that usually depends on actually the interactions that that patient has had with the healthcare system prior to even coming uh, to, to see us in the first place. Often these patients have been invalidated. They've been told their symptoms are, are all in their head, or at least if they haven't been told that, they have been given that impression by other members of the, of the healthcare team. Um, and it's oft, often done by well-meaning clinicians and it's not their goal, that's not their intention, but that's the impression that patients had. And then because of the lack of trained physical therapists, uh, the patient is generally offered a referral to a psychiatrist. And from the patient perspective, that doesn't actually make sense. And that can be perceived as invalidating because they are suffering from very real debilitating physical symptoms. And so from their point of view, why would they need to see a psychiatrist? Um, this, these are symptoms that are occurring in their body. And so this then leads to, as you can imagine, down the road, uh, kind of these non-productive interactions that then happen over and over again. Yeah. So you mentioned a little bit about, you know, that first conversation that you have with the patient. And of course, we as providers, if we're seeing a patient for the first time, can't really help how that patient has interacted with the system previously and mm-hmm. what impressions they're coming in with. But um, everybody, you know, seems to come up with their own way of talking to these patients and giving them the diagnosis of functional movement disorders. What has been your approach to counseling new patients with this diagnosis? What has worked for you that garners trust with the patients and acceptance and helps you as a team to move forward therapeutically? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. And, and I would say that I've been doing this work now for about three years. Um, and I, I have changed a bit of the way that I structure a consult, even when I suspect, when I have a high pretest probability of, of seeing a functional patient. And, and, and really what that involves actually is, um, upfront obtaining a list of all the physical symptoms in the, in the patient's body. 
quite quite literally in a in a point form approach. And I learned this technique through my time when I was on sabbatical working with John Stone uh, and others. He's published in this area, but didn't, having a symptom list at the very beginning of the assessment um, actually is a really good opportunity to survey the entire uh, chief complaints of, of the patient, and they feel heard, and they feel listened to, and they feel that you haven't missed anything. And that's how I generally will open the consult. After that point, I will then focus on the movements. That's, that's what they're there to see me for, my expertise. Um, but I find having that symptom list up front, it also really helps me to decide whether or not I think that this could be a functional disorder. Because often patients will complain of multiple other system, symptoms, they'll have pain, they'll have fatigue, and they'll have cognitive symptoms. So it's a way for me to also adjust my pretest probability. But it builds rapport um, and trust. I then use the physical examination itself as a way to further build trust and, and rapport. I always do a very detailed examination because I'm, I'm looking for signs of comorbid neurological disease that suggest this isn't functional, which is extremely important because many people have you know, a missed radiculopathy, they could have missed spasticity, they could have missed weakness. Um, and then I'm looking for all the positive signs of a functional disorder, which has been written about quite a lot in the literature. And when I find a positive sign, at that moment, I actually point it out to the patients and show them their positive sign. For example, a Hoover sign, which uh, surprisingly now that I'm looking for it more often, I find it in patients with functional tremor who aren't even complaining of weakness. But if it's there, it's very useful because they can see in front of their, in their bodies, in their own eyes, their, that their software is not working, but their hardware is intact. So when I, when I explain the diagnosis, I tell them up front, this is a functional movement disorder. And I, I basically explain this is a problem with communication in the nervous system. And neur, neur, neurological complaints are divided into structural causes and functional causes. And functional causes are the second most common reason to see a neurologist. So I use a lot of validation in my explanation. And then I, I go on to show them their positive signs. I show them how I made this diagnosis. Um, and I offer them a model, which is this, I often use a hardware software. I, I sometimes use other types of models as well um, that might resonate more with the patient. And I provide them with education and handouts that I have written with resources on that first that first clinical visit to increase, um, so they have something they can leave the office with that's real, they have a website, they have information uh, to, again, further, further validate that I, I know what you have and you are suffering. So are, are those resources that you point the patients to, uh, resources that other providers who might be listening to this podcast might have access to, to provide to their patients? Yeah. So I think at this point, one of the better websites is, um, John Stone's website, uh, which is www.neurosymptoms.org. It's based in the UK, but it's written for patients in very, uh, patient-friendly and caregiver-friendly language. So it explains all the different symptoms in the body. I find that one useful. Plus a lot of videos uh, that accompany that that can be helpful. Great. So why don't you tell us about the clinical model that you devised for your patients? Yeah. So this was a, um, a pilot clinic initiative that was carried out by myself and my colleague, uh, Dr. Lindsay McGilvery, who's a neuropsychiatrist and uh, our physiotherapist. And we took the approach that we saw the the care path of many patients, how I just described earlier in our interview, you know, being referred to a psychiatrist with variable su success, being referred to a community-based physiotherapist with variable success, and what would happen, in fact, if we all were together in the same room. And I think a, a little bit of, you know, the thrust behind this approach is that I think at the heart of this disorder, we still don't really fully understand it. And Having these three perspectives in the room with the patient to observe um, what goes on therapeutically is actually a source of a tremendous amount of information. 
I l- I've learned a lot more about this disorder through seeing it through the eyes of a psychiatrist or a physical therapist than I could ever do in my own practice alone. And so we thought, you know, what would happen if we were to take six patients and see them for 45 minutes to an hour each for six sessions? We arbitrarily just chose six sessions. It seemed like a reasonable amount of time. Um, all together in the same room at once. This way, no matter what the patient brought up that day, we could target it. So, for example, the patient was coming in complaining that tremor was much worse and they were having pain, for example. We could then target with the physiotherapist who was right there to work with the patient in terms of strategies of dealing with tremor and pain using distraction, relaxation therapies, etc. But then through the course of that therapy, what ends up happening is patients sometimes begin to manifest anxiety or other types of um, behavioral or, or psychiatric kind of symptoms that are part of their disorder. And then here now we have a psychiatrist who's observing this, who's recognizing this, and then right away they're up and then working with the patient and targeting that and pointing that out to the patient in that moment. And so we thought that perhaps we might achieve outcomes that could be better quicker than having a patient having to see all these different services in parallel with little communication uh, between them. And so that, that, that quite literally was our model. We, we kept a very open mind very deliberately. Um, we didn't want to impose a structured treatment plan on patients because we felt that we wanted to give them the autonomy and the agency, which is also often affected in functional disorders. So we took a bit more of a, of a goal, of a goal-driven rehab approach. So it's all based on the patient's own goals. You mentioned in the paper how uh, having all the providers in the room together helped providers to learn from each other, uh, like you just said. Um, for example, neurologists learning that the patient-centered goals um, is a good place to start, which which I think you mentioned was something that physiotherapists are often mm-hmm. using. Can you um, can you give an example of what a patient-centered goal might be that you would all work together towards? Yeah. So I, I think the first thing to point out is I've learned that many of these patients actually struggle with making goals. I mean, I also struggle with making goals. I think all of us do. Um, but in this particular patient population, what we frequently hear is, I just want to be better. I just want my life back. I just want to be normal. And that's actually a very difficult thing to rehab because what do you measure? What is the target? So a lot of the work up front is determining, okay, well, let's break that down a little bit. What do you want to be normal? What do you want to get better? And I'll say, well, you know, I just want to be able to walk normally. Like, okay, well, how much are you walking now? And then we end up eventually agreeing that being able to walk two blocks outside without the use of a walker, that is a reasonable functional goal target. In the same way as, you know, being able to make a sandwich standing at the counter for your daughter to go to school, that also could be a very tangible goal. Um, oh, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, that that goes in keeping with a lot of the um, the stuff out there on giving feedback to medical students and residents and things mm-hmm. and how it should be actionable and it should be measurable. Mm -hmm. So it it makes sense that you would use those same types of criteria to form goals with your patients. Mm -hmm. Um, So were the clinician, the other clinicians that you worked with, the physiotherapist and the neuropsychiatrist, were they somehow specially trained in managing patients with functional disorders? The neuropsychiatrist, uh, I guess not in terms of uh, training had, her, her clinic was most dedicated to seeing these patients. So she had a lot of clinical, clinical experience with working with these patients. Our physiotherapist, actually, we 
because this was an unfunded project uh, in, a, in, a, in a pilot form of only 12 patients in total, um, we actually borrowed a our, our neurophysiotherapist from our inpatient unit in our hospital and bought out their time for one day a week for every for six times and kind of trained trained her as we were going. She had seen patients like that on the ward, as I'm sure many of our neurophysios have, um, but she had no explicit training. She read the literature. We gave her uh, the literature to read, mostly written by Glenn Nielsen and others, um, and she was able to use some of those strategies. But a lot of it, you kind of learn as you go. And in fact, we actually wrote in the paper, this is an ama- this is a, this method of this model of care is actually a great way to train a team. Yeah, that's, you know, that's really interesting. I guess one of the more important thing really is to find people who have an interest and, um, and are, you know, excited to work with these patients and learn from them. Mm-hmm. That, that can be hard to find. <laughs> well, and it's funny because it, that strikes me as so bizarre because there's, it's such a rewarding population to work with because they're young, they're disabled. They are often very motivated and they can get so much better. So it's, it's a, it's a very reward as from a therapist's point of view, it's a very rewarding population to work with. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, um, you know, there, there, I think there are a lot of misconceptions out there about these patients and really what's probably happening is that we just don't know what we're doing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, when we're approaching these patients and, and, and that's why this research is so important to try to figure out the best strategy to get them better. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So one of the other things that I thought was very interesting was that the providers you said were focusing on perpetuating factors rather than this sort of mm-hmm. initiating factors. And I think, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of what we, uh, what I've at least talked about in my naivete with patients, um, has been, oh, you know, there may be like a root of the problem that we have to get towards some sort of trauma, you know, with non-epileptic seizure patients, there's often mm-hmm. abuse or something like that. And, um, but mm-hmm. you actually, especially in clinical vignette too, you mentioned that you were able to help the patient without actually confronting his history of mm-hmm. trauma. Can you explain why mm-hmm. you think that's important? Yeah, I actually love I love this topic, and I, I just got back from the MDS meeting in Miami, PKS meeting, and I talked about this a little bit. Um, and that is how we actually perceive trauma in this population. I think you know there is without a doubt a higher risk of trauma. These patients have often been traumatized either emotionally, physically, sexually, um, or through war-torn conflict, like this patient you're mentioning in our paper, and. We don't view this as causative. We view this as something that actually embeds itself in the nervous system and, and, and creates a sympathetic tone that is a bit higher. It makes the nervous system just more reactive because these are people often who have lived chronically in a sympathetic state, <laughs> in a fight or flight state. And so, of course, that's going to alter how the nervous system reacts to anything in the environment, stress, but also positive things as well. And so the, um, the the importance of recognizing trauma isn't to say the message to the patient is oh well, this is a direct result of trauma that you that you had in your life because we can't actually change that anymore. What it does is it's embedded a vulnerability in your nervous system, and your threshold for having these movements or having these neurological symptoms is just lower because because of the way that your nervous system reacts. And so it's it's more of an educational piece that kind of removes that stigma of 
you know, this, this literally being all in your head. It's like, well, no, actually these are, this is how your nervous system has been, has been built because of what you, you've endured in your life. Does it, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I like the way that, that, um, you explained that, um, talking about, you know, sort of priming your nervous system. I think that that would resonate with a lot of patients. Well, cause they do have the physiologic markers of that. they often have very brisk reflexes. Um, as an example, they often in the office are, are you know, they get, they get heart rate variability. Their, their, well, studies have actually shown that their, their HPA axis is not working normally. Their amygdala is a different structural size. So there are these markers of this kind of persistent sympathetic arousal. It's just, I don't think we fully understand yet as neurologists how this then alters the nervous system, especially in the exam. Great. Thanks so much for taking the time. No, happy to.